Tonight's reading comes from 1 Kings 18, 20 through 39. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. All the people answered, Well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he has wandered away, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud, and as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the, of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come closer to me, and all the people came closer to him. First he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time so that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. The word of the Lord.
So Elijah, we are not told a lot about his history other than he is a Tishbite. And the first move Elijah makes as he is introduced to us is to address King Ahab of the Northern Kingdom. Ahab is one of many kings listed in the book of First Kings and has married Jezebel, a woman who has introduced the worship of the agricultural gods, Baal and Asherah. In response to the worship of false gods, Elijah pronounces that he serves Yahweh and there will be no rain or dew except at his, Elijah's word. And we can assume that this does not sit well with Ahab. After Elijah's pronouncement of no rain, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet and tells him to go to a ravine where God has ordered ravens to feed Elijah. And despite the drought Elijah has pronounced upon the land, God provides him with a brook from which to drink, and ravens indeed bring him meat and bread twice a day. And sometime later, the brook dries up due to the drought, and the word of the Lord comes again telling the prophet where to go to find a widow who has been commanded by God to provide him with food. God continues to provide flour and oil for the widow to make bread to sustain Elijah, herself, and her son. And sometime later, the widow's son dies. Elijah prays over the boy, and God returns breath and life to the widow's son. A long time passed, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah a third time. Yahweh told Elijah, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And it seems like pretty simple instructions. Present yourself to Ahab, I will send rain. And Elijah does present himself to Ahab, but he also tells Ahab to summon all of the people of the land to meet him on Mount Carmel. Also bring the 450 prophets of Baal and bring the 400 prophets of Asherah as well. Elijah fails to mention anything about God bringing the rain. And once all the people of the land are on Mount Carmel and all 850 prophets are gathered, Elijah shames the people, saying, How long can they dance between two gods? If Baal is God, follow Baal. If the Lord is God, follow the Lord. But how can you follow both? Then Elijah challenges the prophets to a duel, one man against an army of prophets, and it reads a bit like a Hollywood movie from here on out. Two bulls are slaughtered, cut into pieces, and placed on the altar. Each team will pray to their god, and whosoever god ignites the altar with fire wins. The prophets of Baal pray first, but nothing happens, which prompts Elijah to talk some trash. Prophets slash themselves um, as offerings of their own blood to get their god's attention, but no fire. This happens for some time before they give up. And then it is Elijah's turn. Elijah isn't satisfied with a simple prayer. He orders for the altar to be rebuilt and 12 stones to be placed on the altar for the 12 tribes of Jacob. He orders water to be poured over the altar. And that seems like a sensitive thing to do after you have just pronounced a drought on the people. Three years have passed and people have watched their parents and sons die from thirst and malnourishment. So it makes sense that Elijah should waltz in and demand four jars of water to be poured over the altar. Demands that it be done three times for a total of 12 jars being poured out. In the end, the altar is soaked. Then Elijah prays. The altar alights in flames. The fire consumes the sacrifice, the wood. It consumes the soil, the stones. The fire consumes the water. The people fall on their knees and cry, the Lord is God. And this is where the reading for today ends. 
But just the following verse says, Then Elijah kills all the prophets, all 450 prophets of Baal, and presumably the 400 of Asherah as well. And yet, since Elijah has been on Mount Carmel, God hasn't said a word. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain, has turned into a circus and a bloody sideshow. Only after every prophet has been slaughtered does Elijah go up to the mountaintop to pray for rain. Seven times he sends his servant to look to the sea for rain. The seventh time the servant returns saying that a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. A cloud as small as a man's hand. Elijah tells Ahab to hitch up his chariot and go home to Jezebel before the coming storm prevents him from traveling. And overcome by the power of the Lord, Elijah runs in front of the chariot while a storm cloud follows. And none of this has any effect on Jezebel, and she vows to avenge the death of her prophets by killing God's prophet. In fear, Elijah forsakes the people he has just presumably saved. The event of Mount Carmel did not have the triumphant Hollywood ending Elijah imagined, and he runs off to the desert to cry. And despite Elijah's self-pity and cries that it would be better for him to die than to live, God again provides. He sends an angel with bread and water and rest. Elijah ends up in a cave, and the word of the Lord comes to him. God asks him, what are you doing here? And to me it reads as a somewhat, as a gentle, although perhaps a bit exasperated God, asking, Elijah, all I asked you to do was to present yourself to Ahab, and I would send rain. What are you doing here? Elijah avoids answering such a question and says something about how he is the only one true follower of the Lord. Elijah tells, or God tells Elijah to walk out of the cave as he is about to pass by. A wind tore the mountain apart, but God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. Then there came a fire, but God was not in the fire. God was not in the fire. Then came a gentle whisper. God passed by in a whisper. So during this year of dismantling orthodoxy, we here at House of Mercy have heard a lot of stories of people in the Bible behaving badly. And of course, the wicked will act wickedly, um, but we have also seen so much similar behavior from the so-called righteous. There has been a ton of murder, rape, incest, revenge, murder, lying, deceit, murder, abuse of power, and more murder. And everything is justified in the mind of the righteous who are doing the wicked deeds. And this should come as no surprise as rivalry and revenge has been fueling our actions since the beginning. We seek violence and vengeance and then assume the same about Yahweh. It is easy to mistake God being equivalent to God's people. And then there are the prophets. And I can't say that I care too much for Elijah. And I have yet to care for much of any prophet I have met. And somehow Elijah comes across more as a swaggering, self-absorbed crybaby than anything else. But I need to remember that Elijah is not God. And yet through his story, we see the character and nature of Yahweh revealed. So the main prop, if you will, of today's reading had to do with altars. And altars make me think of church, 
but this is the Old Testament, so I assume that we're talking about the temple. So I begin to wonder if there was a temple or where are the priests during the, king, during the reign of King Ahab. I look it up and I find that during this time in the Book of Kings, there are no active temple priests because there is no temple. No temple, no priests. Ideally, the kings would act in service of God and would be the next thing, best nest, the next best thing to a priest. Now, since the kings were mainly doing what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, this priestly substitute thing was not working. So next in line would be the prophets. Prophets would then come in, set the king straight, but then at the time of this story, all of the prophets of Yahweh are terrified of Jezebel and are hiding in a cave, all except Elijah, at the beginning anyway. So in the absence of a priest or a godly king or even any active prophet and during a drought, no less, Yahweh perhaps sees the opportunity to set the scene to reintroduce an atonement ritual that has been forgotten, an atonement ritual that Elijah hasn't caught on to quite yet, an atonement where vengeful sacrifice is not needed. And the first time that I really understood the idea of the atonement ritual was when I took part of a book study this past spring, where a group of us were studying essays written by James Allison. And in one essay, Allison describes the activities of the original temple. There is an event Allison describes in detail known as the annual festival of atonement. So back then, dur during the regular, back then, the regular priests would appear in the temple um, acting more like a butcher as it was their job to slaughter the animals, drain the blood, and divide the carcass. And this butchering would take place in the outer court where we, the common folk, would be. So the outer court was full of blood and the sounds and the smells of animals being slaughtered as well as the burning flesh of the offerings on the altar. And it was kind of a messy area. And beyond the outer court stood the Holy of Holies that was surrounded by a veil. So you have the outer court, the altar of sacrifice, the regular priests, and then the Holy of Holies. And we might see it as a hierarchy. The nobodies are in the outer court making offerings on the altar where the regular priests are working, but they're not as good as the high priests um, who can enter the holy place where Yahweh dwells. But the ancient understanding of the temple was different. The ancient understanding of the temple was that the Holy of Holies was not beyond us that we tried to approach through the priest, but the Holy of Holies stood at the center and the activity of Yahweh moved out to the outer courts. Allison writes, the idea is that from the holy place, the movement of God and of creation is outwards, towards you, who are standing in the court about to witness the great ritual of atonement. The movement was outwards, towards you. The night before the rite of atonement, the high priest would sacrifice a bull to make himself ritually pure. And then lots would be cast over two identical sheep or goats. The lots would determine which one would be a stand-in goat for Yahweh and the other would be for the demon goat upon whom all the sins would be transferred. The blood of the stand-in for Yahweh would then be the blood of the stand-in for Yahweh would then be drained and collected and the body would be divided to be used later on in the ritual. The high priest is then dressed in a glistening white robe, wearing a crown bearing the name of Yahweh. He enters the Holy of Holies, holding a vessel <clears throat> containing the blood of the stand-in, 
that he is to sprinkle over the sacred objects of the holy place. And the people would be watching, waiting for signs of God's interaction with the high priest. The high priest is still in the Holy of Holies praying and becomes, as Allison writes, interpenetrated by Yahweh, whom he is going to incarnate for the rest of the rite. Then the high priest emerges, comes through the veil dressed in his glistening white robe. The high priest, as an image of Yahweh incarnate, walks out toward the people. The other priests put on, put on him the high priestly tunic that is made of the same material as the veil surrounding the Holy of Holies. The only difference is that there is a gold filament running through it, indicating that he is one who has, who has entered from the other side. The unseen God is now visible. Now the high priest climbs the altar, climb, climbs the stairs of the altar of sacrifice. The portions of the sacrifice stand in Yahweh goat are handed out to the priests. The priests are then to eat or gnaw at the portion given to them. Other portions would be held in thanksgiving. Other portions would have been burned. The high priest would then take the remaining blood and start to sprinkle the blood of the goat over the temple courts, including the people. Atonement, at its root, its origin of the word, means covering. So we are atoned as we are covered in the blood of the goat. Then the high priest would lay hands on the stand-in demon goat, and all the sins would be transferred to it. The stand-in would then be driven out of town to a precipice or a ledge where it would jump and die. This has become known as the scapegoat. Allison writes that the whole purpose, flow, and direction of the imagery is to point out that this is not a sacrifice being demanded by God of us, but on the contrary, and an entirely benevolent generosity offering a sacrifice to satisfy our seething human vengeance, seeking wrath. So if that has been true of God from the beginning, before Moses with the Ten Commandments, before we had a list of sins to avoid, if God's intention has always been to come towards us in self-sacrifice, then no evil king or false prophet could change that. So what does that have to do with Elijah? Well, if there's no temple, there is no high priest. So how will Yahweh incarnate himself to us, to creation? There is no high priest, but there is a prophet and the promise of rain. Rain would signal the release of the death brought on by the drought, and rain would return breath and life to the people. My thoughts have lingered on the fact that God's intention has always been to move towards us, always to be offering himself as a sacrifice. And then my thoughts lead me to the bread and the water of the ravens, the bread of the widow, the resurrection of the widow's son, the rain, the bread, and the water of the angel. And it seems as if God makes his presence known through a lot of meals. The priests ate portions of the standing goat, and plus Elijah later on becomes a huge part of the ritual of the Jewish Passover meal, which makes me think of the Passover lamb, which makes me think of an entirely other meal. So God is moving out of the holy place, making himself seen to creation through materiality, making himself manifest to us through visual means. Now in the original temple, that visual manifestation was through the high priest. But like I said before, we have no temple, but we do have Elijah. We have two bulls and two altars of sacrifice. 
We have 12 stones for the 12 tribes, so this is a sacrifice meant for everyone. And maybe Elijah was to act as a high priest, so God could offer the self-sacrifice of atonement. Or maybe God just wanted to bring rain. God wanted to bring back to life that which was dead, and maybe rain was the atonement. Instead, it became a day of battles and mocking and strutting and not atonement at all. Even prophets drift off course in mimicking the violence and perpetual need for a scapegoat based in the belief of a wrathful God. But that is not Yahweh's character. Yahweh keeps approaching us with great mercy from different angles until we understand. And Elijah doesn't quite understand. Elijah and everyone else in the story is caught up in the powers of Baal. Baal was a god of thunder and rain and storms and intense fertility. And perhaps Elijah wanted dramatic fertility from God. He wanted God to be revealed through strong, virile materiality. God has manifested his fertility to Elijah through the ravens and widows and angels, but it seems as if Elijah was not satisfied with that. None of that is very impressive in terms of fertility, not as impressive as a drought or fire or mass slaughter. Between the challenges Elijah makes to the prophets of Baal, to commanding the fire to come down, to the praying for rain on a mountaintop, it seems as if he is marketing Yahweh to be just as powerfully fertile as Baal. And when the rain does begin to fall from the cloud, as small as a man's hand rising from the sea, Elijah tucks his cloak inside his belt and runs ahead of the stallions that pull Ahab's chariot to where Jezebel waits. And that's a pretty dramatically fertile image. But God wasn't in the dramatic. He wasn't in the wind or in the earthquake, and God wasn't in the fire. God was in the almost nothing at all. God was in the whisper. A whisper is small and easily overlooked. A whisper is an intimate act that requires closeness. When Yahweh moves towards you and whispers in your ear, you can feel Yahweh's breath moving the hairs on your neck, equally fertile in a completely different way. In every approach, God is trying to reach us in very tangible ways. Again and again, God provides us with food and drink. God draws near to us, enfolds us, into God's self and provides the fertility we need. <laughs>